And good morning. Last Sunday, we recognized some of our young people for some of their accomplishments, uh, two of which were Brian Seed and Nathan Blackwell, uh, who had succeeded at regional, moved on to sectional. Well, they competed at sectional, and both are going on to state now. So we're very happy for them. So if you see Nathan or Brian, make sure you say congratulations to them. Luke chapter 9 this morning. Luke chapter 9. I'm trying to plan my preaching right now so that as we approach the season of the year where we celebrate the resurrection in April, that we're going to work out that way. So we are not going to cover the entire Gospel of Luke in the next six to eight weeks. <laughs> I, I just can't do that because I take too much time. and I, So I'm going to pick out some things that we're going to cover in the time between now and resurrection time. So Luke chapter 9 this morning. And uh, we've come to a section of scripture that tells us about the transfiguration of Jesus. The transfiguration, probably the pinnacle of Jesus' earthly ministry, probably the most significant event between his birth and Calvary. Jesus was never closer to his glory and his divinity prior to the resurrection than he was here at the transfiguration. And this is an event that occurred during the final year of Jesus' ministry here on earth. I think for us to grasp the significance of the transfiguration, we need to remember what preceded it. About a week prior to this, Jesus and his disciples had been at Caesarea Philippi, and it was there that Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? We've talked about this recently. And they began to give him the standard answers of the people that he was John the Baptist that had come back to life, or maybe Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets that had arisen from the dead. But he, he pinned them down and said, but who do you say that I am? And it was on that occasion, Simon Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And he was absolutely right. So it was then, as we saw last Sunday, that Jesus began to tell them how he must go to Jerusalem, be rejected by the religious leaders, be killed, and then rise from the dead three days later. It was at that time, according to Mark's account, that Peter took him aside and said, Never, Lord, this is never going to happen to you. It's like Peter was saying, I won't let this happen. I'll protect you. And Jesus had to rebuke him, saying, get behind me, Satan. And then Jesus taught them about the cost and the nature of true discipleship, how we must take up our cross daily and follow him, as it says in verse 23. Well, Luke then comes to verse 28, and it says, And some eight days after these sayings, it came about he took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. About eight days later. Which means that Jesus gave the disciples about a week's time 
to ponder in their mind and in their hearts this shocking prediction of his tragic rejection and his death, and especially that unexpected lecture they received when Peter tried to change Jesus' plan and said, no, this isn't going to happen. What kind of a week do you think that would have been for the disciples? Don't you think they had a few sleepless nights? Don't you think they had a few, <laughs> not that you can hide anything from Jesus, but don't you think they tried to have some secret discussions? Don't you think there was some confusion on their parts and a week of disappointment and discouragement and, and the turmoil, just that soul-wrenching torment they had to be going through and maybe thinking, man, if he's going to die and we're following him, are they coming after us too? But now, with this event of the transfiguration, Jesus would be able to remove, at least for three of them, their discouragement by balancing his earthly suffering with his heavenly glory. So let's read the text. We're going to begin in verse 27, Luke chapter 9. Jesus said, but I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now let me just pause right there and tell you there are several scholars who believe that that may refer to Peter and John and James and that they caught some glimpse of the kingdom of God in the transfiguration. That the transfiguration was in essence a fulfillment of verse 27 for some of them. And some eight days after these sayings, it came about that he took along Peter and John and James, went up to the mountain to pray, and while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different. His clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And it came about as these were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. And while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. The traditional location of the transfiguration is Mount Tabor, over 1,900 feet in height. But more recently, scholars have looked at the possibility of Mount Hermon as the site of the transfiguration, which is over 9,000 feet. In Mark's account of the transfiguration, in Mark 9, verse 2, it just says it was a high mountain. Mount Hermon would certainly 
qualify for that. But Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. We call those three the inner three or the inner circle. These three were the only ones to witness this event, the transfiguration. They were the only ones allowed into the room with the parents to behold the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. They were the only three that Jesus took with him further in the Garden of Gethsemane before he prayed. So these three seem to have been the nearest, the longest, and were the ones that were most intimately linked to Jesus in their thoughts and in their heart. Luke says Jesus went up the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the transfiguration took place. Now what actually happened? What did they see? Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all emphasized the splendor of the dazzling white light that was radiating from his entire being. A blinding light, a light of splendor blazing with sunlight glory. I think this is the incident that John refers to in John 1, 14, when he said, We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. When did John and others behold his glory? Well, he and Peter and James beheld it right here in the transfiguration. Peter would say in 2 Peter 1.16 that we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I think he's referring to this event. So Jesus was transfigured before them. Now to say that he was transfigured means first of all that when people saw Jesus, Peter, James, and John, all right, and everybody else that would see Jesus just walking along a roadside or whatever, they normally saw nothing different than any other person. Just a normal Galilean, a normal Jewish man with a common name, Jesus. Lots of men had the name Jesus at that time, a common name. Now only one of them was Christ, the title but Jesus was a common name, so, so they would see nothing different, basically. But for this brief, splendid moment, these three disciples beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus. He was transfigured before them. The Greek word that we translate as transfigured is the word metamorphose, from which we get our English word. Metamorphosis, sure. Matthew and Mark both use that word in their account of the transfiguration. Luke doesn't. Luke simply says, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. Now, if you remember your science classes in school, you know that metamorphosis is the process involved when a caterpillar wraps a cocoon around itself. And after a period of time, a beautiful butterfly comes out. It refers to an outward change that comes from the inside, not the outside. This transfiguration, this was no phenomena that could be explained by nature, by anything physically happening to Jesus from the outside. 
It wasn't something externally happening to Jesus. It was something internal. It was emanating from within his very nature. In essence, Jesus became on the outside what he was on the inside. And here was evidence for these three that Jesus was God. God in the flesh. These disciples had been in the presence of God and maybe hardly even realized it, but they witnessed now his glory and his majesty. And that's not all. Another spectacular phenomenon took place because appearing with Jesus were Moses and Elijah. Now, if the disciples were still sleepy, as Luke says in verse 32, don't you think they're wide awake now by this time? I mean, Moses had been dead for a thousand years, folks. Elijah lived in the 8th century B.C., before Christ. But listen, those who have departed this world that were people of faith, okay, they still live in the presence of God. And he has the power to make them appear at any time and place that suits his purpose. Now, why Moses and Elijah? Well, the common thought is that Moses represents the law. God gave the law to Moses, the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone to Moses. So Moses represents the law, it's believed, and Elijah represents the prophets. And as Dave mentioned, our Sunday school lesson today shows Elijah transferring the mantle of his prophetic leadership to Elisha. Now they talk to Jesus about his coming departure, it says. The Greek word for departure is exodus, about Jesus' coming exodus. In other words, they talk with Jesus about his coming death and resurrection, the things that were awaiting Jesus in Jerusalem. Now, how did Peter recognize Moses and Elijah? Well, probably from the photo album. <laughs> right, right. Are you ready for this answer? I don't know. I really don't, because the Bible doesn't tell us, all right? I don't know how he recognized him. Maybe it was supernaturally revealed to him by the Father. That could be a good answer. Maybe he could tell from the conversation they were having if he could overhear what they were talking about. Maybe he figured it out from that. I don't know. But as the men were leaving, Peter attempts to hold on to that golden moment. He suggests to Jesus that they make three tabernacles, what? We would refer to as a tent or maybe a lean-to, whatever. But it was a bad suggestion. It was based in fear. Mark's account tells us he didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. But to have done that would have ignored the superiority of Jesus. You don't put Jesus and Moses and Elijah on the same level. Can't do that. Jesus is far superior. If you don't believe that, come on Sunday nights as we study the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 2. Chapter 1 tells how Jesus is superior to the prophets. He's superior to angels. And in chapter 2 and 3 now, as we get into tonight, he's superior to Moses. So we're studying about that right now. You don't put them on equal ground. And just as Peter was rebuked a week earlier by Jesus, when Peter told Jesus, no, you're not going to die. This is not going to happen. 
this time he's rebuked by the Father. (laughs) He's interrupted by a cloud and a voice. The voice of God the Father repeating basically what he had said at Jesus' baptism. This is my son, my chosen one. And this time the Father adds these words. Listen to him. Not Moses, not Elijah. Listen to Jesus. Why? He's far superior. He's the son of God. And when the disciples lift their eyes back up, everything's back to normal. Moses, Elijah, the cloud, they vanished. Jesus alone is standing there. And as they come back down the mountain, Jesus helps these three disciples understand a prophecy that's found in the book of Malachi, how Elijah would come before the Messiah, and Jesus helps them understand that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of that prophecy. He also tells them to tell no one what they had seen until after he had risen from the dead. Why wait till after the resurrection? Well, evidently, these men still had more to learn. And because the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus back to glory would help explain the meaning of the transfiguration. And the evidence of Jesus being Lord is going to be completed by the sending of the Holy Spirit as we get into Acts chapter 2. So Jesus tells them to remain quiet about this until after the resurrection. And guess what? They did. They did. As near as we can tell, they were the only people who ever obeyed Jesus' command to keep silent. How many times do you read that Jesus healed someone, cast a demon out of someone or whatever, and said, don't tell anyone? And what did they do every single time? They told everybody they could. But these three kept quiet. So we've read the passage. We've, we've analyzed it a little bit. Let's make some application. What does the transfiguration mean? I've preached on this sometime back, I'm sure. And I, I go back. I take a look at what I've said before. And I kind of liked what I've said before as I've looked at the transfiguration. What does it mean to us? What does it mean to Jesus? What did it mean to Peter and James and John? What does it mean to us? Well, first of all, what did it mean to Jesus? Well, it meant a lot. This was a foretaste of glory. Maybe I should say it was a retaste of glory. The glory that he had given up and left behind when he came to earth. Because for an instant, it's like he's home again. Paul writes in Philippians 2 verse 6 about Jesus. and says, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And so, at least for a few moments, Jesus was able to put his glory back on. The glory that he set aside, the equality with God he set aside in order to become a man and come here and die for you and me. 
So he's able to put that back on, and he allowed these three to witness it briefly. The transfiguration also was an encouragement to Jesus. Later on, he would pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And we have to remember that Jesus was fully man as well as fully God. He, he knew the agony and the suffering that awaited him. No one in his right mind would want to endure what Jesus endured for us. The transfiguration made it easier for Jesus to say yes to the Father's plans. The Father's loving voice, this is my Son, my beloved Son. That would comfort Jesus. It would encourage him in his mission. Harold Fowler, in his great commentary on Matthew, puts it this way. He says, it's like the encouragement felt by an expert pilot flying through a storm-tossed night with no visible landmarks when suddenly a voice comes over the radio saying, we've picked you up on radar, friend, and you're right on course. And Jesus was right on course. And Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, verse 17, that Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter refers to this event and says, We heard that voice. We beheld that glory. And so Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father in the transfiguration. That, that's what it meant to him and probably so much more that we could never comprehend. Well, what did the transfiguration mean to the three apostles that witnessed it? Well, they received further proof and evidence of Jesus' true glory and who he really was. It helped prove to them beyond a shadow of a doubt that Peter's confession was right on target. Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the transfiguration is further proof of that. It also confirmed to them that the plan of God, that the program of Jesus, was the will of the Father. In a time when they thought Jesus was seemingly headed for failure, now they could know he's headed for glory. They still didn't understand it all, especially the part about the resurrection. They're still thinking of an earthly kingdom with a human army. They're going to get a spiritual kingdom with a heavenly army. They expect liberation from Rome through a conquering king, but they're going to get liberation from sin through a risen Lord which all in all is a much better deal. But witnessing the transfiguration would also allow these three to confirm later on that Jesus had the power to prevent his death. He didn't have to go to the cross. He didn't have to die. He could have prevented it. He's God. But the fact that he did die on the cross shows that it was planned by God and that God was in control the, the whole time. These three could confirm that by what they witnessed here. The transfiguration 
also would be an encouragement and provide strength to these three men for the dark days to come. The dark days to come for them. James would be the first of these three to die. Acts 12 verse 2 tells us Herod had him put to death with the sword. And when Herod saw that that pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter, planning to do the same thing. But you recall the story how the angel loosed him and Peter got up and walked out through the gates and so on. Tradition tells us Peter was crucified, but that he requested to be crucified upside down, not feeling worthy to die in exactly the same way as his Lord had. John is the only one that would die of natural causes of old age, but even he was banished to the Isle of Patmos because of his testimony about Jesus, and it was there on that little island that he received what we now have as the book of Revelation. So don't you think the transfiguration, their glimpsing their Lord in glory, gave these men hope and strength and comfort and peace in the dark days that would come for them? Because if their Lord's death would end up in a glorious way, might not their deaths wind up in glory with their Lord as well. But what does the transfiguration mean to us? For you, for me. Well, for one thing, it means Jesus' death was something he did, something he accomplished. Did you notice the word in verse, um, 30, verse 31? When Moses and Elijah appear in glory with him, they were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Jesus' death was something he accomplished, something he did. It wasn't just something he suffered. He wasn't a victim of circumstances. It wasn't an accident. He didn't get himself between a rock and a hard place where he just couldn't get out of it. No, he accomplished it. He did it on purpose. John 10, 17 and 18 confirms this for us. Jesus says there that he laid down his life of his own accord. He said, I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This authority I received from the Father. He died on purpose, folks, according to the plan of God. Acts 2, 30, Acts 2 verse 23 refers to it as the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Before God ever created the heavens and the earth, before he ever created man, Adam and Eve, and put them in the Garden of Eden, before, before they ever ate the fruit, that they were forbidden to eat from and sin, God already had planned to send a Savior to save man of his sin before sin was ever committed. The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. The transfiguration also shows us the dead are alive. The dead are alive. Death is not the end of us. The dead are aware of what's happening on earth. I believe. 
What did Moses and Elijah talk with Jesus about? What? Verse 31. His departure. How did they know about that? They're aware. They were aware of what was going to happen to Jesus. I believe that those who die in Christ are still aware of things that are taking place here upon this earth. I believe that. You don't have to believe that. That's not a salvation issue. But I believe that. They knew what was going on. They were a part of that great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us here on earth, as mentioned in Hebrews 12, verse 1. After you read Hebrews 11 about all these great people of faith, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's lay aside everything that entangles us, the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Consider him, the writer of Hebrews says. I believe that the dead are aware of what's happening on earth. Death is not the end of us. The dead are still alive. And I think it also tells us that we're going to know each other in glory. Moses was still Moses. Elijah was still Elijah. You will still be you. I will still be me. We're going to have new bodies, glorified bodies, that's going to last for eternity. Folks, death does not have the final word for a Christian. The transfiguration also teaches us that God's in control, even when it seems that he isn't. He's still in control, still on his throne. He's still God. There's, there's no other God. He is in control. So whatever you're going through right now, as a Christian, it will not end in darkness, doom, and death. It won't. That's not the script God has written for you. There is glory and victory to come for those who die in Christ. And finally... The transfiguration means that Jesus stands alone as the one that we need to listen to. The Father said, listen to him. And well, we should. And we need to get back to the scriptures and listen to what Jesus is saying to us right now. Today, February 12th, 2023. What is Jesus saying to us? Read his words. Read the scriptures. And we need to do more than listen to what Jesus says. We need to do what he says. Don't be merely a hearer of the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. And are you? Are you, as a Christian, doing what he says? I pray that you are. And if you're not a Christian... If you've never yet accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, you can do that today, right here in this service.
you can obey the gospel. How? By believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. There is one God. He loved you so much, John 3, 16, that he sent his Son to save you from your sin. So believing that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died to save you from your sin. How does it make you feel to know that your sin caused an innocent man to die? A sinless man to die. Hopefully that would sadden you a little bit, grieve you a little bit, and lead you to repentance. Repentance is a turnaround point and a change point. You change the direction of your life. You change your mind about who Jesus is so that you can come back to the Father. Sin takes you further away. Turn around. Repent of your sin. Come back to the Father. Be willing to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, just like Simon Peter did in Matthew chapter 16. Confession. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. Be baptized, which in the scripture, baptism is done by immersion. Be immersed in water for the remission of your sins. It's not the water that does it, nothing magical about the water, but it's the submission to the command of Jesus. It's doing what he said to do. And when you do that in baptism, according to Paul in Romans 6, you are basically reenacting what Jesus did for you. He died on the cross. In baptism, you're putting to death the person to sin. They buried the body of Jesus. In baptism, you're buried in a grave of water. Jesus arose on the third day. You get to arise a lot quicker than that. Praise God, right? You're raised to walk, as Paul says, in newness of of life. So you hear the message, you believe it, you repent of your sins, you confess your faith in Christ, and you're baptized into Him. At that point, God does His work of cleansing you of your sin, placing within you His presence, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38, read it yourself. Then you live the life. You follow His commands, His teachings, and you die faithful in the Lord. Have you done that? You can do it this morning. And if you need to, you just come out, meet me down in front. We have a baptistry with warm water in it. We have things you can wear. We have towels you can dry off with. Everything is ready, including the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They're ready. They're waiting. And they bid you to come to Christ. Let's stand and sing.